This is the current federal tax developments for the week of June the 28th, 2021. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your State Society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and we're broadcasting this week again from Phoenix, where it's nice, warm, and hot. And we'll talk about some of the things that have come up this week in the area of federal taxes. We'll start by looking at something that the Journal of Accountancy reported on Friday, which resulted in the question of a CPA, or I should say, the issue of whether the SBA is going to be withdrawing their PPP loan questionnaires. That was reported this week, and we'll talk about why they might be doing it. It's reported to be withdrawn in response to a lawsuit that was filed in December by the Associated General Contractors of America. We have some release from them, follow-up questions by the Journal of Accountancy to the Association of General Contractors of America, and kind of talk about where we sit there. We also find that the courts find it was not clear if a taxpayer qualified for a home gain exclusion due to unforeseen circumstances. Both the taxpayer and the IRS were arguing for the court to give summary judgment in favor of them. The IRS ultimately decided that, hey, you know, I should say, not the IRS, the court did, that essentially there really is a question here. So we'll talk about what was going on there, why it might have been unforeseen circumstances and why it might not have been. As you may guess, the problem is they couldn't meet the two-year test, specifically in this case, the two-year use of the home as a principal residence before it was sold. We'll talk about the IRS extending through June 30 of 2022 the special rules that allow remote witnessing of certain documents being signed for qualified retirement plans. The IRS had first given this relief last year related to COVID. They extended it afterwards and now they've extended it one more time. And they are also asking whether we should permanently allow, that this is probably one of those things we're going to see coming out of the pandemic, uh, where certain things that were allowed during the pandemic temporarily may have proven not to be as big a problem as the agency had feared they might be, or people got more used to it. Let's be honest. Most people probably didn't really know what Zoom was before 2020, and today probably almost everybody knows what Zoom is, or at least has some vague idea, even if they've not used it. So conceptually, we're going to talk about the ability to use those sorts of features to get documents signed. And finally, just more a cautionary tale, uh, a CPA's conviction for assisting in the filing of false returns by a client was upheld by the First Circuit. The First Circuit specifically rejected the CPA's defense of, I just used what the client gave me as a defense. And we'll talk a little bit about why they didn't buy that line and the limitations of what a client tells you uh, and when you can rely upon it and when you can't. And there are times both ways. We can rely sometimes. Sometimes we can't, and that gets back in this case. But let's start out with what we think will be good news. At least you have a client that got a PPP loan in excess of $2 million. And this is a statement from the Association, Associated General Contractor, not Association, Associated General Contractor statement that was published on June the 23rd and then was picked up by the Journal of Accountancy last Friday. So on the 25th, the Journal of Accountancy published an article related to this. And so the question became, well, what exactly did we see come out on this? So let's talk about how things worked and what came out on this structure. So the issue was there was a June the 23rd statement issued 
that the SBA will be withdrawing the questionnaires used for Paycheck Protection Program loans of more than $2 million. If you remember the history of the program, we went through a lot of fun last year. And you may remember the back and forth over the loan applications of Ruth Chris Steakhouse and similar questions that were raised about applications filed on behalf of Shake Shack and Potbelly Subs. That got a lot of negative commentary from uh, especially the chair of the Small Business Committee in the Senate at the time, Senator Marco Rubio of Florida. Uh, and so all of this hubbub went and, you know, Marco was saying that, nope, you know, you people had to certify that you really needed this loan and we're going to hold you to that. And in fact, you know, that if you've been lying about that, we're going to force you to repay the entire loan, et cetera, et cetera, some saber rattling. Now, this put pressure, of course, on the SBA to come up with some ideas about this. And eventually we were told that loans in excess of $2 million would be subject to special reviews by the SBA to look at the necessity of the loan. In late last year, the SBA issued uh, two specific forms, Form SBA 3509, the Paycheck Protection Program Loan Necessity Questionnaires, which was for for-profit borrowers, and the related Form 3510, which was the same necessity questionnaire background, but this time for not-for-profit organizations. And any organization, effectively how it ends up working, is any organization had a loan of over $2 million was ending up getting these questionnaires, which went into a lot of detail that we discussed and they were issued. And they were looking at issues like, did you really have a drop in business in late 2020? You know, did, did you seem to have some real financial distress in question and went through a lot of issues. Now, the Associated General Contractors on December 8th of last year filed a lawsuit. That lawsuit uh, essentially said that this was effectively the complaint was that they had failed to meet the, you know, that these forms had been produced in violation of the Paperwork Reduction Act, Administrative Procedures Act. They failed to meet minimum standards for due process. They didn't give a 60-day exposure period. And they essentially were using these rules to retroactively impose a post-loan need test on these loans. And they pointed out that, in fact, at the time the loans were granted, all they had to do was make a good faith certification that the uncertainty of current economic conditions, uh, you know, made the loan necessary. So if, in fact, we could show that there was not that level of uncertainty, uh, we apparently were still good for what was going on. Well, they said, well, obviously, you know, now we're trying to kind of look at some basic rules about what actually happened to liquidity, what happened to uh, essentially sales during that period, and all of those issues that could not reasonably have been anticipated at the time that the loans were taken out. And so we basically get into that. Well, obviously, the lawsuit has moved forward. And what the Associated General Contractors stated, uh, Brian Termail, which is a Vice President of Public Affairs Strategic Initiative, um, said that effectively the group had been informed by attorneys for the Department of Justice uh, that the SBA has now begun the process of withdrawing the questionnaire. They submitted a formal request to OIRA, right, which is the Office of, in, of Information and Regulatory Affairs of the Office of Management and Budget. 
And once that process is finalized, the SBA will make a formal announcement about the fact via updated frequently asked questions. We do not know the ultimate timing on that, but according to the Associated General Contractors, what they've been told by the Justice Department, it's essentially a done deal. Now, this gets us into an interesting situation right now because we are starting at the end of the 10-week, you know, basically the 10-month period during which you must submit an application. Remember, we're supposed to submit our applications by 10 months after the date that we had that our covered period ended. And now we're starting to hit those 10-month periods where the 24 weeks ran out if somebody got their loan early. Obviously, a question arises as to what other changes will be made to the FAQ when they withdraw this application. You know, are we going to see anything else changed? What will be the real changes about the review? Because currently, what we found out is, for the most part, you know, the SBA has been leaning heavily, it appears, on these questionnaires as part of the review uh, to, in essence, let them come to conclusions whether there was an appropriate certification of necessity. My guess would be, to be totally honest, that this is probably a problem that the SBA just wants behind them. I suspect there may be no real changes, and what may really happen is $2 million plus loans may get approved for forgiveness faster. Uh, they still have, of course, a long time period to review later if something comes up, and I'm sure they'll think about that as their option going in. But essentially, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see them back off entirely. Remember, this program was started due to the outrage that came about those early loan application programs. Um, remember, a few weeks later, that kind of changed over to outrage the other way because people were saying, you know, they were changing rules after the fact, uh, that, you know, there was all these problems. The uh, questionnaire got it to a higher problem level, shall we say, where people said, well, now you're really changing things after the fact. And I'm not sure that the chairs, that the new chair of the Small Business Committee or even the ranking member. Now, remember, last year, the chair was Marco Rubio. The ranking member was Senator Cardin of Maryland. Now we've swapped those two positions. And while they both were upset, shall we say, about the Ruth Chris situation, my guess is at this point, they're not really going to raise nearly as much of a ruckus about the SBA backing off this. So because of that, Right. And because we have this information coming from the DOJ and this withdrawal, I wouldn't be surprised to see us get a much more streamlined forgiveness process going forward. Next up, we're going to talk about a case that deals with the exclusion uh, for sale of a principal residence under Section 171. This is the case of the United States versus Forte. This was a case filed in the United States District Court uh, for the District of Utah, case number 2-18-CV-00200. The decision came down on the 21st of June. Now let's talk about how this works. In this case, we have a situation where a taxpayer had a couple of issues with home. So let's talk about this. He had a loan that he had purchased in 2000 and that had been sold initially in 2005. Okay. That's not really our problem. 
so we have this. We have this home. We lived there till 2005. In June of 2003, the taxpayers purchased a lot on Snow Forest Cove with the intent to build a home on that lot, right? They obtained a loan and began con constructing the home in September of 2004. They then sold the Windsong home in September of 2005, and they did not get paid the full, in the end it turns out, they did not get paid the full contractual amount because they carried back apparently, or at least did a partial carryback of some sort. And so they were unable to collect on their seller finance notes in connection with the Windsong sale. Okay. Now remember, in the interim, they had then moved into that house, right? That they had moved into in there. So they were talking about moving into the Snow Forest Cove house, right? So they moved into that house. Remember, they had acquired the lot back in 2003. They'd gotten construction loans in 2004. In late 2005, they were actually in December, they actually moved into the home, obviously, in late. And they also purchased at the same time a lot adjacent to that home in order to retain a scenic view from that new home. Well, at this time, remember, at that point, they then turned around and they had just sold the Winsong home, but it had to carry back a note on this. Now, here's the problems, you know. First thing is they had a lot of financial issues before they moved in. So that ends up being an issue that's going to come into play. The court noted when they moved into that home, they had a loan with high interest rate. They couldn't end up finding they couldn't refinance that loan due to the fact they had bad credit. So they had a friend of a friend uh, help refinance the loan by borrowing his name. In January 2006, they issued a warranty deed conveying this home to this friend of a friend, uh, which was recorded. A trust deed naming him as trustor and the Fortes as beneficiary was also recorded. Got a loan for $1.4 million. They kept $20,000 and the remainder paid off that high interest loans and they made the mortgage payments on those new loans. In April 2006, they also executed a warranty deed in favor of this friend of a friend. In February 2007, the friend of a friend signed a quick claim deed conveying titles of the home back to them. And in May of 2007, that loan on the Snow Forest home was in default. In August, they transferred the title to an LLC they owned. And it was disputed if and to what extent the financial situation was worsening in the fall of 2007. But there's no question that in September of 2007, effectively three months before they would meet the two years of time period of living in that home, right, they ended up selling the property. So they ended up doing that sale. And remember, we also had a 2005 sale of the old home that was in this mix, too, that also might have been involved in 121. So a problem they had is they really couldn't meet the two-year holding period, right? So we had their financial distress, right? They couldn't meet the two-year holding period. That was kind of their problem. So here's the question. We know that while you have to have lived in the residence for two years and have uh, used the principal residence for two years prior to the date of sale, for two of the five years prior to the date of sale, there is a special set of rules under 121C that can allow you, in some circumstances, some specified others under unforeseen circumstances that cause you to sell the home, that allows you to get a prorated amount of that total exclusion. 
this case, the total exclusion has been a half million dollars for this couple. Obviously, be somewhat less than that because we ended up three months short. So essentially, we would get about seven-eighths of the exclusion normally be available to us. Well, they had obviously claimed that exclusion. The IRS disputed it and said, nope, you don't qualify because this wasn't unforeseen. Now, the IRS claimed that, in essence, you know, the problem was that it wasn't unforeseen because they were in precarious financial situations when they moved into that home. So it was not unforeseeable that they would have to sell the property before the two years were up uh, due to the fact that they would be forced, their hand would be forced due to their financial situation. And they claimed that they actually made their situation worse that essentially at the same time purchasing this lot. So they were in bad financial condition. They went out and got a brand new loan to make it even worse. And the IRS is saying, well, you know, reasonably, a reasonable person you know, would have to have foreseen the possibility of being forced out of the home. And they actually referred back to a case, which I'm really going to have trouble with this person's name, Chiarito versus Commissioner, which was a tax court summary commission, a tax court summary opinion from 2010, 2010-149. And they claimed, well, that was also a taxpayer who was in financial distress and had to sell their home, you know, ended up selling the home, and they knew they were in financial distress going in, so therefore, you know, the court found uh, that, in essence, you know, these findings were, it was not reasonable for them to assume it would be a problem. But the court pointed out a couple of things. First, they said, look, guys, that's a summary opinion. It doesn't bind a district court. So that's nice, but irrelevant. You know, the case cannot be appealed. It's not allowed to be cited, or essentially, it's not meant to be relied upon for other cases. So A, that's your first problem. Secondly, they said, really? You know, in essence, that, that was very, very different. They said, look, the taxpayers in that Chirato case, Rito case, right, they owned a catering business and they purchased a home with an intent to build a second residence on the property, which would have an industrial kitchen. However, there were certain regulations that prevented them from building second residence with a kitchen. When they reviewed whether they could exclude the gain, the court decided there were multiple uh, determinations of fact in that case, not just their financial circumstances. They, they said basically the taxpayers knew they had a need for industrial kitchen before they purchased a home. They were well aware of their financial losses. They learned of their inability to purchase, to build a second residence after they sold the previous homes. And there was evidence that their sale of the home was attributable to a preference for another home, all precluding their ability to exclude the losses based on unforeseen circumstances. In essence, the uh, court in this case said, even if this was binding on us, that case had a lot more complicated facts than you argue here. It didn't simply argue that if you were in financial difficulty coming in, that, you know, or you were in this kind of vague general financial difficulty coming in, that any sale within two years ended up being triggered by financial problems automatically was not an unforeseen circumstances. They said, you know, the real problem here is it's not totally clear, right? Did they reasonably have anticipated they would not receive the full sale price of that old home they'd sold prior to moving into the new home? Now, the court kind of implies that if they knew there was a reasonable possibility, you know, of that happening, that maybe it was reasonably foreseeable and therefore they wouldn't qualify. But they said, but that's a matter of facts here. The IRS did not produce evidence 
showing that essentially, you know, the taxpayer should have known about that issue. Now, but they also said, but here, you know, taxpayer, we're not going to say you get this exclusion either. You know, I know you're saying it was unforeseeable that you would be defrauded, it was the term they were using, and not receive the full sales proceeds from the buyer of the old home. They claim they suffered a devastating financial blow after moving into the house. They were victims of a financial crime. The court said, guys, you were already in financial trouble before you moved into the home. We did not, we don't know for sure when you realize you'd not be able to collect many 695 and holdbacks from the buyers of that home. Uh, it doesn't say when they tried to do it, when it became clear that it was a good chance you wouldn't get it, right? And, you know, did you have reason to believe this problem existed before you moved into your home in December 2005? The court said, essentially, look, there's a key question. It's maybe possible that, you know, and we've seen this rule before, that a change in financial circumstances could be an unforeseen circumstance. But the catch is, you know, not that we knew for sure this was going to happen, but was it reasonably able to anticipate that this was going to happen? And if that was, if we could have a reasonable anticipation that this was a very real possibility that we could be forced out, then arguably it's not an unforeseen circumstance. Conversely, if they would have been fine, except for that, you know, not getting the $695,000, and it's clear they didn't have any reason to believe they wouldn't get it before that date, then it kind of flips it the other way. Now, we don't know the rest of the facts, and that's going to be decided by the court. It might be a bad fact if, in fact, the Winsong home, the reason they had to carry it is because their buyers had bad credit, you know, and had issues, and that, that would be a reason to, like, flag it. You know, did they sell it to those buyers? Because remember, time was running out. They had, you know, they were already under pressure for that new home. They wanted to buy the lot. So were they under pressure to close that Winsong sale and say, oh, yeah, it's kind of a shot in the dark and it may totally collapse on us. But, you know, we really want to do this. So we're going to go ahead with it. Or was it something totally out of the blue? These appear to be good buyers. Everything looked good. And then suddenly this came apart and had that not come apart. The other financial problems were not what caused them to sell. So it's one of those things to understand that and to be careful when you read the facts of a case. Uh, you know, had this actually been tried, you know, the mere fact that the taxpayer maybe couldn't claim or couldn't show they had financial distress would not mean financial distress never works. And conversely, you know, the fact that the IRS maybe uh, lost out would not mean that in different, slightly different facts, things wouldn't be different. Facts matter, and I think that's what's killer in this case. Obviously, the IRS believed they had this all locked up with that old tax court summary opinion case. Not sure why you'd believe that, but, you know, they went there. You know, be careful not over-reading your cases is maybe the best takeaway. Now, the IRS continued something we've discussed before that started out last year in Notice 2020-42. In this case, what we have the IRS using is Notice 2021-40. And this came out on June the 24th, 2021. And what this tells us is that essentially, you know, we are going to have remote witnessing of documents has been extended again by the IRS. Last year in notice 2020-42, we talked about the fact that certain retirement plan documents must be, must, that need to be signed must be witnessed. And a key one here is, for instance, when a spouse is giving up 
on their rights to, you know, have a joint survivor annuity coming out of a retirement plan. Uh, generally, we need their signature. And because we think that maybe, you know, somebody might forge their spouse's signature in a case like that where they wanted to take this money out and not tell the spouse and we need the spouse's approval. So we just kind of quietly make this happen. Uh, we required those to be witnessed in person by a representative of the plan who got, you know, proof this was the person or a notary public who would have to see the person in person and, you know, go ahead and say, yep, that's the real person. Well, the IRS had temporarily allowed remote relief. And in fact, the, the remote relief was extended. It first went through December 31st. And then in notice 2021-3, we extended that to June 30 of 2021. Well, now we're hitting that time frame. So what the IRS said, and they also in that notice 2021-3, also began asking whether or not, you know, has, has this really been a problem? Do we see issues? Or is this good enough for us to consider maybe making this permanent? Now, obviously, we're coming up on that deadline. So what the IRS has done now is given us another full year under this program. My takeaway from that is I think the service believes that they want to make this permanent, but they're not yet totally convinced that they want to do this kind of, you know, because once you do it, you're going to be stuck forever. So we're going to have this particular issue going through there. Now, what this covers generally is if you if your state allows notary publics to, you know, witness documents remotely, and a lot of that took place in the pandemic, those were set up and they're, you know, and some of them were there ahead of time. Uh, we're going to go ahead and ex as long as the notarization is legal under the state law the notary is operating under, uh, we're going to go ahead and say that's fine. They meet those requirements. So we're looking there at the remote state requirements. If we're going to do it with a plan representative, notice 2021-3, uh, essentially said that, well, in that case, what we're going to do is you know, whoever signs the election must present a valid photo ID during the live video Congress. They can't just send a copy of the photo ID prior to the, or after the witnessing. So I got to see, you know, that this guy's, you know, this guy or this woman's uh, spouse is actually sitting in front of the camera in a live session. I have to talk back and forth and they then need to show me their ID so I can verify it and they have it in their hand. I, the, the, we have to allow interaction. You know, they're concerned here somebody might tape something or modify it, you know, to get a tape of their of their spouse and then modify it to say things. So they want to have an actual interaction where we can do this and I can ask questions back and forth. Right. Um, you know, we don't. So a pre-recorded video is not sufficient. And then after they have signed it on camera, they transmit a fax or a scan of that copy of that document to me. And I turn around as plan representative, acknowledge signing and what we've witnessed and send back a copy of the document to them, indicating this has been accepted via this range. Now, the IRS is again asking, should this be made permanent? And they're asking some questions. Has that temporary removal, you know, uh, required for witnesses to be there affected costs and burdens? You know, is it made it more costly, less costly? And where the costs and burdens of physical presence requirements support modifying that requirement? Uh, has there been evidence that's resulted in fraud, coercion of the spouse, other abuse? 
and how, if we permanently modified, we could take care of those particular issues, um, how they're being witnessed or expect to be witnessed as the pandemic abates, you know, whether the available in-person notarization has returned or is expected to return to pre-COVID-19 pandemic levels. Are we going to be seeing everybody just not really care about this anymore, or are they going to? Uh, you know, what procedures to make safeguards, et cetera, so all these issues. They are asking you if you have comments on this to submit your comments at the e-rulemaking portal at www.regulations.gov by September 30th of this year. And the way you find the comment, the way you find this thing to comment on is uh, type in IRS-2021-40 in the search field at regulations.gov to find the location to submit the comments. Finally, let's talk about some not great uh, news, at least for one CPA. This is the case of United States versus Nardazzi uh, from the Circuit Court of Appeals of the First Circuit, the First Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, it's case number 20-1093, and the opinion was issued on June the 21st. Uh, Mr. Nardazzi had been convicted by a jury uh, of fraud, conspiracy, and assisting in the filing of false income tax returns. This all relates to returns he had prepared for a particular client. Okay, now these particular problems, the client had with positions on the returns had effectively avoided just under $600,000 in federal taxes and on the returns that had been prepared by this individual, right? That had been prepared by this CPA, he had avoided over $600,000. Now, some of the things he had done, he had used his law firms to pay personal expenses, such as tuition, uh, you know, credit card bills, vacations, car purchases, and shopping expenses, and he would classify those as taxable business expenses, reducing his firm's taxable income by $2.2 million over a four-year period. Right. So that also cost him at the corporate level nearly eight hundred thousand dollars in taxes. So he had a C corp and he had individuals. So he had a couple of things. Um, they also assigned nearly four hundred thousand dollars of the law firm's revenue uh, to the attorney's spouse, even though she did no work for the firm that allowed her to make a maximum tax deductible set by rate contribution. And by doing that for the years in question, they had additional $267,000 in deductions on the returns, again, causing issues. And he also prepared and filed a return on which he improperly classified a $420,000 stock purchase as an IRA rollover. In essence, they had taken IRA funds, used them to buy stock outside the IRA, not in the IRA custodian structures. He treated that as a rollover. Uh, he avoided paying any taxes, early withdrawal penalties, on the 217,000 withdrawn from the SEP IRA and 105,000 from, from his SEP IRA, 105,000 from his wife's IRA, you know, with those monies going in to buy the stock. And he also failed, failed to report his use of approximately $150,000 of business funds to pay off a personal loan as taxable income. And the CPA does not dispute on appeal that each of these incidents, instances, get that name, impeded the IRS in collecting the proper amount of tax, right? So obviously this guy had a bunch of tax issues that ended up being on this return. And so we have an understatement of taxes of well over a million dollars involving his C corporation and involving his personal return. Now, 
now we got to figure out, okay, the CPA is kind of arguing that, wait, wait, there's no evidence I conspired with this client, right? And saying, you know, realistically, look, I just prepared the returns based on what the client and the bookkeeper gave me. And I was just totally out of the loop here. I didn't know what was going on. So poor little me, you couldn't do this. The court really said no, a reasonable jury, because this is the level of test here, you know, is this, is this conviction just totally unsupported by the evidence? And the court found, even said early on, that it was strong evidence uh, that the, you know, the jury can look at your actions and consider other information. You know, we're rarely going to find somebody sitting down there is, you know, please defraud the federal government on my behalf and the CPA or the taxpayer saying, oh, yeah, I'll do that. I will help you to defraud the federal government on your behalf. And, you know, we won't have this written documentation of a conspiracy. So they say, no, you, you, you can look at this versus the actions of the party. And they noted, in fact, that the CPA had discussed the problem of double taxation between corporate and personal taxes for a C corporation in a journal article and at seminars. Didn't say if he presented at seminars, but it seems to imply that he did. So he had basically, you know, written articles, holding himself out as an expert, talking about this double taxation problem. So therefore they say, well, A, he's perfectly aware that if these expenses are being paid by a C corp that are personal, that's a major tax issue, right? Because there should be a dividend and there should be a corporate tax paid because that would be a dividend if it's not really a business expense, right? Um, they said also, he's an experienced CPA, had particular knowledge of these issues. He said, you know, he repeatedly mischaracterized personal expenses, business expenses, allowing him to claim a million of dollars in business tax deductions. And part of that is, okay, maybe it didn't say on there these were personal, but the theory being that given his level of involvement with the client, he should have at least noticed that these expenses appeared to be somewhat on the high side, shall we say, in that case. And at least two instances that withdrawal of the SEP IRA funds to buy $420,000 worth of stock and use of business funds to pay off personal loan. And this is probably the most problematical issue uh, for the CPA. Uh, the CPA had expressly informed that attorney that the transactions would have rather severe negative tax consequences. When the attorney objected to paying additional taxes, uh, the CPA just apparently went back and reported in a way to avoid having to pay the taxes, right? So, and the problem with this is having already been on the record that what you did, you know, was really going to cost you taxes. And then, of course, the client throws a temper tantrum uh, to essentially, you know, basically back the CPA back into a corner to get him to report a different way. Well, now you got a problem because the court holds that the CPA, knowing it was illegal to do so, followed the client's wishes and reported these transactions in a way that avoided any increased taxes. And my bet would be with no disclosure or justification for the position because the client wouldn't like that one either. So the clear implication becomes quickly that this client, with their expertise and experience, they knew or should have known about virtually all of these issues. And the fact that what really appeared to be happening is that when the client balked, the CPA quickly got the um, impression, right, that A, don't ask too many questions, and B, don't make me owe tax, whatever you do. So 
kind of indicated, therefore, that the CPA had continued on preparing these returns for all these years, that there was an implied conspiracy here to assist this taxpayer in avoiding taxes, right? And as the opinion concluded, it says, look, a jury could easily conclude that the CPA knew the personal expenses could not be claimed as deductions, knew the tax implications of this attorney's financial dealings. You know, he knew those consequences when he proposed to create backdated corporate minutes, declaring a dividend that could be used to reduce or eliminate the loans. Uh, it's even stronger by advising them on certain transactions and then backed off of that. You know, be very, very careful. I mean, there's a lot of bad features here, and there are things that I have heard CPAs uh, kind of even in courses openly suggest. Well, why don't we go back, you know, and because, eh, I know they took too much out of the S corporation. It's an excess distribution. Why don't we go back and just write up a loan document and treat that as a loan to the taxpayer? Or let's you know, say a loan from the corporation to the taxpayer. You know, why don't we go back and, uh, you know, do all these, put these minutes in and backdate them. I mean, okay, first key, backdating is never good. It's always going to be bad. Secondly, you know, when we talk about this, now, obviously, these were big numbers. That's what brought everything to IRS attention. And this attorney kept pushing, pushing, pushing. But the problem is that clients can start small and get used to pushing on areas that would never get the attention of the CID. Uh, but they then grow in size and suddenly they're still pushing on the same issues, but the numbers now have gotten way large enough to get attention. It's not okay to backdate documents. It's not okay to create loans after the fact, right? It's not okay to, you know, try to invent a justification for not taxing something that you really know should be taxed, you know, and that's apparently what got the CP in trouble. And attempting to claim at the end of the day that I was relying on the client and the bookkeeper, that generally doesn't sit. In fact, unfortunately, what happens all too often is that the client in a case like this turns around and claims, I had no idea this was wrong. You know, I told my CPA everything and he said it was all good. I mean, why wouldn't he? You know, obviously he did because he decided to sign this return. I'm a poor little attorney that has no idea about the tax law. It's amazing how ununderstanding un they might become in this case. I assume could you could say something like that. I don't know. It never told us the attorney turned on the CPA because, you know, we're not really looking at that issue here. Uh, but it happens fairly often. So, you know, people will turn. When CID shows up, they love to throw the CPA under the bus. That's a normal issue. So, yeah, that's a real problem and a real issue. So, you know, just take care, you know, and... It's good to review cases like this to see exactly what happened. And you're going to see situations in here that you've definitely had clients kind of push you to do before. Or you're going to hear about situations. I know I do in a case like this where I've had people ask me in courses, well, it's not a problem. You just backdate a loan. It's like, guys, do you understand what that does if it does get bad enough and CID comes in? backdating documents looks very, very criminal at the end of the day. So be careful there. Okay, this has been the Current Federal Tax Developments here for the week of the 28th of June. Uh, Current Federal Tax Developments brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your State Society of CPAs. We'll be back here next week. As always, I want to remind you, if you're a member of the societies in Arizona, New Jersey, uh, Illinois, uh, get my whole group in there, 
right? Washington. Uh, I do kind of watch Minnesota. I watch their Connect sites and do it. I'll also say I'm beginning to watch a similar site for the Idaho Society. So if you have some issues, you can post things there and I'll try to respond. That's Idaho's trying to get this off the ground. So if you're in Idaho, uh, you might want to make use of that. The, these type of discussion boards are useful only to the extent that people actually go in and make use of them. And to be totally honest, share. Uh, there, you know, it's, it's people helping people. I can certainly tell you that, like here in Arizona, you know, it's obviously become a very, very helpful place for people to go, especially to try to figure out state-specific issues. Uh, I see it similarly in New Jersey has a very active forum that does the same thing. And, you know, you don't have to be a huge state. Arizona's been doing it for quite a while. And yes, the state has grown dramatically uh, over the past few years. But as I recall, our listserv in some form goes back to the late 90s, you know, over 20 years ago. And Arizona then was maybe not a small state, but it certainly was not nearly the size it is today. So, you know, participation is your key getting that going. So check in there and we'll see how things get going on that one. Otherwise, we'll see you back here next week for more information and updates here on current federal tax developments.